Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 30th, 2018. The parade of insanity continues. I think that's a good way to put it, right? <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, those are the only kind there are nowadays, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God? Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption uh, by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There are a lot of charlatans out there who are making merchandise of uh, people in Christ's church teaching for shameful gain things they ought not to be teaching, and generally scratching itching ears and telling people what they want to hear rather than what they truly need to hear. It's a very dangerous time in Christian history, and the apostasy is growing in its magnitude and its scope, and uh, it's just... Yeah, yeah, there's nothing great about the great apostasy is the best way I could put it. Now, a little bit of a note here, and that is is that I generally uh, spend a lot of time putting the program together and trying to theme it. Oftentimes, uh, when you listen to an episode of Fighting for the Faith, I try to get all of the different segments pulling in the same direction. And uh, I don't always, in fact, most of the time, I, I rarely ever say what the theme is, but there is a central theme or concept that we're trying to uh, work the uh, episode around. Now, that being the case, today's episode is not that. And so I, when I've been unable to actually theme an episode, I let people know so that they don't try to figure it out because... Uh, you're going to end up uh, you know, beating your head against a brick wall, and, and there's no fun in that. And so I don't want you to spend effort and time doing something 
when that it will it'll be fruitless. So today's general topic then is just bad stuff. <laughs> or you know, stuff that ain't true or the stuff that's really ironic and not biblical. Yeah, you kind of get the idea. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's non-themed episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Uh, we'll be uh, <clears throat> checking in with Kay Nash's YouTube channel. And uh, I, I've made an effort to not bring her onto the main program, but just keep her uh, as a feature on our Dumpster Fire episodes over on our YouTube channel. <clears throat> Today I clearly have lost my mind because we're going to be listening to Kay Nash um, on how to go to the next level, which you know, this is like standard pablum when it comes to uh, the uh, charismatic and narismatic, N-A-R-ismatic churches. You know, you know, it, some prophet, prophetess will get up and talk about it's time for you to go to the next level. Well, Kay Nash is claiming that she received direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit about steps that people can take. I think there's eight of them uh, that uh, in order that they, they can go to the next level. So have you have you plateaued in your quest for greatness and significance and all that kind of stuff? Well, don't worry. The prophetess Kate Ash is uh, going to remind us of a message that God the Holy Spirit gave her at the beginning of the year that she delivered at some women's conference and uh, how to go to the next level. After that, we'll do a new Apostolic Reformation update. Uh, we'll head over to Bethel Church, Redding, California. And we're going to listen to Chris Vallotton as he claims that the New Testament prophet Agabus and uh, we'll do some biblical work on this one, uh, that Agabus uh, gave an incorrect prophecy, an, an, an inaccurate prophecy, but that, that, that doesn't mean that he's a false prophet. And this is a standard line, again, in the charismatic movement and, and those people who claim that, you know, that we currently have uh, uh, living prophets and apostles, uh, but the problem is, is that the quality of their prophetic words is far from, uh, you know, biblical in, in at least in its uh, ability to get things right. There's so many inaccurate prophecies out there. So this is uh, um, propaganda on the part of Chris Vallotton to shore up, you know, uh, you know, people's flagging belief or faith in the ongoing uh, prophets and apostles there at Bethel Church and without the and throughout the uh, NAR uh, movement. And uh, so what they do is they take Agabus and they throw Agabus under the prophetic bus and say, see, he got it wrong. So, you know, but he's a true prophet. So if, you know, if we get it wrong, we're still true prophets too. Wish I was making that up, but a little bit of a, you know, preview for what's coming. I'm going to be demonstrating from the actual biblical text that Agabus did not get it wrong. Nope. He did not get it wrong at all. He got it absolutely 100% correct and right. And uh, then to round out our number one, <clears throat> we're going to be listening to a Perry Noble update. Perry Noble has um, restored himself to ministry, and he has, no joke, Perry Noble's leadership podcast. So he's teaching leadership to uh, church leaders, 
Yeah, and he's going to be talking about, and this is stated by him not ironically, which is weird, um, that um, he's going to be teaching about unhealthy Christian culture. Yeah, I I know. I heard you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. This is, wow. Talk about tone deaf. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of the, isn't that the phrase du jour used by SJWs now, tone deaf? Yeah, so uh, we'll be listening to uh, Perry Noble and his tone deafness as he tell, talk, tries to talk about unhealthy Christian culture. Oh yeah, yeah. Then in our number two sermon review, we're heading back over to narrate church in Adam Hushka, and we're going to listen as Adam Hushka literally is teaching the people at narrate church in Helena, Montana, about centering prayer. Mm-hmm. This is a Roman Catholic mystic practice uh, that uh, is not taught in Scripture. This is an extremely dangerous mystical practice, and he's no joke uh, defending it and promoting it and explaining people on how how they could engage in centering prayer. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground that we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update, let's do this. Hallelujah. Get up right now. It's Robert Tilton and Hubabaconda. So we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Kay Nash in her <clears throat> program titled Living Well, where she's gone into the archives and pulled out uh, a message that she delivered at a women's conference that she claims she received directly from God that is really important for this year about how to go to the next level and what we're going to hear being spewed from her mouth is not biblical. It's not from God, the Holy Spirit. It's just the standard charismatic nonsense. And nobody's correcting her. No one's telling her to sit down. No one's challenging her and telling her she's a false prophetess. No, they are instead encouraging this behavior and sending this lady farther into the demonic. That's the only way I can describe it. So without any further ado, here is Kay Nash and how to go to the next level. Welcome back to another episode of Living Well. I'm Kay Nash. Today I wanted to share a sermon with you. This sermon I spoke at the beginning of the year at the Prophetic Women Worldwide Annual Conference. and this- Yeah, you heard that right. She claims that this is a sermon. Yeah, God's Word doesn't permit her to preach those. 
one was this. It was eight tips to go to the next level. If you feel like you're plateauing in your life and you're kind of stuck and you're just ready to go to the next level, whether that's financially, whether that's positionally, whether that's just spiritually, whatever it is, I have eight tips that are going to help bring you to the next level. I had prayed about this a lot before the conference, and these were eight things that the Lord had told me. Now, I know... All right, so God specifically gave her as this as a direct revelation. So add this to the back of your Bible... Some of you are thinking, oh, I already went to the conference. I'm not going to watch this. No, you need to. Yeah, no, I I wasn't there. And I've put myself through the torture of watching this. Still haven't figured out exactly why, but (laughs) we continue. Keep this message before your eyes because we need to be doing this before the end of the year. Now, there's some things in there that might be a little challenging for some of you. Some of you... you All right, so we only have until the end of the year to really apply these eight steps because God wants us to be applying them, like, right now. Oh, man. (laughs) The year is already half over. I have already accomplished some of those things, and so the other tips may apply. But I really think these are some biblical and spirit-led tips to get you to the next level before the end of the year. All right, here we go. So there's eight things that God told me we need to do this year in order to walk in our promotion and efficient and effectively. Because you know you could walk in a promotion but not be efficient and effective, okay? <laughs> you can get a promotion at a job and be a hot mess, but God wants you to be efficient and <laughs> effective, okay? So- mm-hmm. God wants you to be efficient and effective. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is definitely a hot mess for sure. Uh, the first thing I, I heard the Lord say that we need to do for 2018 didn't sound very spiritual to me when I heard it, but I'm going to share it anyway. The first thing I felt that we needed to do was we need to get out of debt this year as a body of Christ. Amen. Because, you know, when we're enslaved to another company, those principalities have a direct line to attack us. And the Lord wants you to be free from debt this year. He, he does. What about those people who, you know, like have a mortgage? You know, maybe they don't have credit card debt, but maybe they, you know, they have a mortgage. That's a standard way of being able to afford uh, purchasing a home. Are you saying that God wants them to pay off their mortgage this year? How is they, How are they going to do that? You know, <clears throat> And, you know, I, I've been in debt, you know, when I first met my husband, I was over twenty-two, twenty-three thousand $23,000 in debt. And I was like, this is not going to be a good thing to like tell him, um, you know, because now he's going to have to bear this burden. And he had no debt. You know, he was brought up in kind of like a debt-free household. We don't do debt, but you know, I was just like, oh, I need debt. You know, that's just kind of what college told me, you know, and the credit card companies told me like, it's fine. You'll just pay it off later, you know, but the Lord kind of spoke to me and was like, you need to pay all this off. And so we are debt free, praise God. And we don't owe a man a dollar, not with our ministry, not with our business. We pay for everything in cash because God will provide. Um, so uh, way to go. I'm so glad you practice what you preach here. And you sure God told us we have to get out of debt, you know, cause again, I, just thinking about the fact that, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm i in the awkward position of saying, you know, we, we, we got a mortgage. Now, granted, I mean, 
we're we pay the mortgage every month. We're not we're not struggling to do so, but um, so that's debt. You know, are you saying God is telling me I have until December thirty first of twenty eighteen to pay off my debt? What if I don't? Am I sinning? Jesus, Jesus. You know, when I was in debt, it made me focus on money and not God. And it was kind of like, I was like, how do I get out of debt? What do I need to do to get out of debt? Jesus, Jesus, talk to me about my debt. But when I got out of debt, you know, there was a peace that came upon me. That was like, I don't have to, I don't have to think about that anymore. That annoying spirit that would kind of like try to harass me, that was just gone. And so, you know, what I realized about debt is it's really not trusting in God. Because. So having a mortgage means you don't trust God. Do you have a biblical text that says, if I have a mortgage, I don't trust God? You can't pay that bill. You can't pay it. And you're like, well, you know, I'll, I'll just put it on the credit card. But when you do, you move out of the Holy Spirit's breakthrough. So if you've ever used a credit card to, um, you know, purchase something that uh, you needed but couldn't afford in the moment, the Holy Spirit has withdrawn from you. you. You're out of the Holy Spirit's breakthrough power and stuff. No biblical text says this, Kay. As you're about to step into the breakthrough, but all you can see is the ashes. Yeah. Huh? And God's like, there's something else over here, but you've got to walk in faith and say, I'm not going to take that credit card this year. I'm not going to take that student loan. God pays for whatever he ordered, yeah. okay? So God pays for whatever he orders, so... No student loans, no credit card debt. What about mortgages? You know, you, you don't seem to be talking about those. He pays for whatever he ordered. And so you are not experiencing miracles in your life because of debt. And so it's like, you're like, oh, I'm going to grab the credit card. Hold on. He's so if you, you purchase something on a credit card, you can't experience miracles. Thus saith the prophetess Kay Nash. About to do a miracle. It's often when God's going to do a miracle that you'll get a bunch of bills in the mail saying, you can take out this credit card, you can do this, and the devil is tempting you. Okay, so anytime you get an offer in the mail from a credit card company offering you a a credit card, every single time that occurs, it's the devil tempting you so that God can't do the miraculous in your life. Okay. I was like, oh, let me wrap you into this principality of this company so you're enslaved for years and you don't feel free. And so I think the thing tonight is full deliverance. You know, you've got to be free in your finances because when you don't, when you're not enslaved to a man, there's a quicker pace that you walk. You walk a little quicker because you're not like, oh, I've got I to pay them. Let me think about how I should do this. Let me think about how I should manage my budget. You start moving quicker. You start moving quicker. You start believing for bigger things. When God showed up for that one light bill, maybe God will show up for the rent. Maybe God will show up for the building. Maybe God will show up for a conference. Maybe God will show up for a missions trip. Maybe he will. Maybe what? what may, are you saying maybe he won't? Because <laughs> you're not saying he definitely will. You're saying he might. Maybe. It depends on if you have if you have debt or not. You know, he, def, he definitely won't show up if you have a mortgage. I, I guess. You know, and so you got to, I really felt an emphasis on that. Um, Jesus. Hmm. 
And here's another thing. There's lots of books on getting out of debt, but that doesn't mean that's how you are supposed to get out of debt. Oh, okay. So if you are in debt and, uh, and you're seeking expert advice on how to get out of debt, that, that may not be the way you should get out of debt. You need to listen to the prophetess Kane Ash here. She apparently has some new insights about debt management that, okay, yeah. Because the Holy Spirit will anoint your own personal process. And you got to get in tune this year with the... The, the Holy Spirit's going to anoint my own personal process. Okay. What, what is that? Holy Ghost process for you to get out of debt because that is where the breakthrough lies. Yeah, getting out of debt's pretty simple. Um, spend less than you earn. Use the, the, the amount that you didn't spend to pay down your debt. It's kind of, it works like every time, you know? You know, it's like every debt I had to get out of because there was a bunch of them. I had to get a new process from the Holy Spirit. You can't do this. New processes. So how many different processes did you go through in order to get out of debt? I mean, how many different processes are there is kind of my question. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Over and over again, if the Holy Spirit has not anointed it afresh. Okay? So you got to think, God, you give me the plan, and as weird and as crazy as it sounds, that's the plan I'm going to do. Okay, because somehow there's an anointing when he made the plan. If you made the plan. So, so we need to have God reveal a plan, and, which is a process. And then when he does that, the, he's going to anoint it. <sighs> I've already started like rubbing my head, you know, as if I'm in pain. Because I actually I think I'm in some kind of, I'm experiencing mental anguish and torture, you know. I, I Help, I've fallen and I'm experiencing mental duress. May or may not work. And even if it works, it might not last. Because there's sorrow with wealth that wasn't gotten right. Okay? But when you get wealth right, there's no sorrow. All right. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant, slave to lender. Proverbs 22, 7. So if you want a theology basis for what I was talking about... All right, so the borrows a slave to the lender, Proverbs 22, 7. Okay. So there's one for you. Okay, the second thing I felt like we were supposed to do this year is um, having a consistent prayer life. Now, All right, so I got to get out of debt and I got to be more consistent in my prayer life. Now, anybody who has followed my ministry for years, you're like, yeah, okay, how many times are you going to tell me that? Um, but. but I'm going to say it a million times until we all get it. And when we start getting it, I'll stop saying it. Amen. <laughs> yeah, because this, this, is, this is fresh, you know, revelation she's <clears throat> giving us here. I mean, so, I mean, God is sitting there up in heaven going, we, we, you need a way more consistent prayer life if you want to go to the next level and get out of the current plateau that you're stuck on in achieving your density and stuff. <laughs> just Jesus but here's the thing when people tell me they're like hey you don't understand you're called to ministry you have hours to pray and do things and I have a full time job listen I was a producer for the Washington Post okay I worked 50-60 hours a week I was up at 1.30am 3.30am but I at least could get up and spend 10-15 to 15 minutes with the Lord you know he understands and respects your schedule 
He knows what's going on, but give him 10 to 15 minutes, even if you can give, I mean, I hope you can give him hours, but if you can't. Yeah, but it's, it's not only is this something that she's saying that, you know, is a good idea, but she's claiming God, the Holy Spirit told her this is part step two of eight steps that you've got to, you know, go through. Uh, if you want God, the Holy Spirit, to help you go to the next level, if you're stuck, you can't expect to get unstuck unless you, uh, you, you pay off the mortgage, cut up the credit cards, and uh, and be more consistent with your prayer. Yeah. Now, all of this kind of <clears throat> begs the question, uh, where in the Bible is all of this taught and in step format? The answer is nowhere. In fact, the theology, though, that he, she is bringing to us is not a biblical theology. Uh, The book of Galatians, chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this to uh, the churches in Galatia who had bought into the false doctrine, the false gospel of the Judaizers who had mixed grace with works, uh, and in this particular case, the works of the Torah, the Mosaic Covenant. And here's what Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was prob- publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? By the way, the answer, the correct answer to the question is the second one, by hearing with faith. So are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, the theology that she's claiming she's received directly from God the Holy Spirit straight up contradicts what God the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write for us in the pages of the epistle to the Galatians. Mm -hmm. You see, the Spirit works miracles and supplies our needs because we hear with faith. We hear and believe, not because of works of the law. So Kay Nash is, uh, you know, I've said it before, but I'll just continue to reiterate the fact she's straight up a false prophetess. This is a woman whose theology and doctrine that she claims comes directly from God the Holy Spirit is contradicted by the exact same word of God that she claims that she has allegiance to. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, an NAR update with Chris Ballatin claiming that Agabus was an inaccurate prophet and then a Perry Noble update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Drop it, sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next. When you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was... Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way.
Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Uh. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Agabus was a very accurate prophet. Because he was. He wasn't inaccurate at all. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says uh, become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is uh, Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on Become a Patron. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to 
Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, it is time for a new Apostolic Reformation update, so let's do this. Jude, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Elaboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled. By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, so uh, we're going to be listening to part of a message delivered by Chris Vallotton where he literally is going to make the case that a false prophet is not a prophet who gets it wrong or gives inaccurate prophecies, that a false prophet is something other than that, and he's going to invoke Agabus from the uh, book of Acts chapter 21. Now, we will take a look at Acts chapter 21. I think we'll be in Acts 28. And we're going to test to see if what Chris Vallotton says about Agabus is correct, if it's accurate, if it's true. Because, I mean, that's this is kind of an interesting um, theory that is put forward by today's continuationists. They claim that Agabus was an inaccurate prophet, but he, he still is considered a, a true prophet, but he inaccurately prophesied. But when you consider what Scripture actually says, you find that their claims are absolutely false. Agabus was an extremely 100% accurate prophet because he was a true prophet of God. So without any further ado, here is Chris Vallotton. What is a, what is a false prophet? Because the Bible says in the last days false prophets will arise. So how many of you know that there has to be real prophets if there's going to be false ones? You wouldn't counterfeit $2 bills if there was no such thing as a $2 bill. So some people read the Bible like this. In the last days, all the prophets will be false. But that's not what Jesus said. He said last days, false... Why don't we just go with testing the prophets, you know, using biblical standards, actual biblical ones. We'll give you the biblical standard for this, by the way, shortly. Prophets will arise. If all the prophets were false, Jesus would have said, in the last days, any, pro- any prophet who arises will be false. So the question is, what, what is a false prophet? In um, Acts chapter 21, Agabus prophesies about Paul. Agabus said that the, gen- that the Jews would bind Paul and they would hand him over to the Gentiles. What actually happened, you can read it in verse 32 and 33, is that the Gentiles bound Paul and turned him over to the Jews. No, that is not what happened at all. Let's do a little bit of biblical work, and uh, let, let's actually take a look at what the biblical text says in context, and uh, we'll note some of the uh, the Greek phrases along the way, and do a little cross-reference work, too, 
And while we're at it, we'll even throw in what the Bible does say regarding the standard for uh, you know a prophet. So uh, we will be in uh, Acts chapter twenty-one, Acts chapter twenty-one, and we will go back into the context of Acts chapter twenty-one, where the prophet Agabus does give a prophecy uh, to the apostle Paul. And here's what it says. We'll start in uh, chapter 21, verse 7 for our context. Here's what it says. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Now, you know, this is one of the we sections of the book of Acts. This was written by Luke, who also is the author of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And in the we sections, he's an eyewitness to the things that he's recording. Here's what it says then. So on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that's the prophecy. That's the actual prophecy given by Agabus. And then later in chapter uh, 21, we see the unfolding of the the fulfillment of this prophecy. And we'll note very carefully uh, the verses that Chris Vallotton noted but we'll do a little cross-reference work, too, and we'll see if this is absolutely true, that Agabus got this totally backwards. Here's what it says. So uh, Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that's seeing the apostle Paul, in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, and the law and this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That's absolutely false, by the way. For they had previously seen Tromphius, uh, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple at once the gates were shut. Now, notice here, okay, just looking at the the verbs. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. Now, note, earlier in the chapter, Agabus had already explained what was going to happen to Paul, so there was no point in repeating it. But if they seized him and they dragged him, uh, then you're going to note then that Paul here is being moved against his will. And fascinating is the Greek word here for dragged is uh, helco. Let's take a look at what that means. Uh, to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion, to draw with the implication that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or in the case of persons is unwilling to do so voluntarily, in either case, with the implication of exertion on the part of the mover. So in order to drag somebody, you're going to note that's not an easy thing to do. In order to drag somebody, you're going to have to actually 
probably immobilize them. You know, maybe like by tying them up, seizing, dragging. You'll note that the verbs here all kind of go along the lines of what it is that uh, Agabus was saying. So they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he uh, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Now, a little bit of a note here. I'm going to go back up into the context, and I want to show you something in the Greek. And that is is that um, the word bind, deo, yeah, let's take a look at that. And so, so coming back to Agabus, his prophecy, verse 11, coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind. Now, the ESV uses the word bind. The, uh, the Greek verb in question is here, and uh, it's actually, you know, in its uh, lexical form is deo, and let's take a look at what that means. And this is kind of an interesting thing. To confine a person or a thing by various kinds of restraints. See, Deo actually has a very wider uh, understanding of what it could be, mean than just to simply say bind, you know, in, in the in a kind of a restricted sense. So, um, we'll note that by Paul being seized and dragged and them trying to kill him, he was definitely confined in restraint, you know, in, in restraints of some kind, just like Agabus had said. So then coming back then to the context, so uh, we got the Romans now getting involved. And so they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, so he at once took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done, and some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. And for the mob of people following, uh, who followed, they were crying out, away with him. So you kind of get the idea here. Now, note, the Jews had Jesus first, not Jesus, but Paul. The Jews had Paul first, and they then, you know, and then Paul was then delivered over to custody by, you know, in the, uh, the Romans. The Romans had custody of him after the event. So Paul later in Acts 28, by the way, explains what happens and, you know, summarizes it this way. And he says, brothers, in Acts 28, 17, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So I hate to say this, but Agabus got it straight up 100% accurate and correct. Paul wasn't delivered from the Romans into the hands of the Jews, as Chris Vallotton says. No, it's the exact opposite. The Jews seized him, dragged him. Clearly, he was under restraints of some kind, which would involve a binding in the deo sense of that Greek verb. And he was ultimately delivered into the hands as a prisoner, uh, delivered into the hands of the Romans. 
That's exactly what Scripture says. Agabus got it straight up right. And if he hadn't got it right, then he wouldn't be a true prophet. And the reason for this is simple, is that the book of Deuteronomy gives us the standard for a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says this at the very end of the chapter. Um, and I'll, I'll put the context in because it's very helpful. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God or see this great fire uh, any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them and all that I command, you know, and say all that I command him. Wh- whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God is through Moses, prophesying uh, Jesus. He's the one who's being prophesied here. And God's saying, if you don't listen to him, yeah, you're you're in deep kimchi, as an old friend of mine who was a, a, a Korean war vet used to say. He's not alive anymore, but he used to say that. But anyway, listen to this. So, But the, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And so if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, he gets to be put to death because the um, the punishment for prophesying falsely in Israel was death. So a false prophet, one, not the only, but one of the tests was if you prophesy something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then he's a false prophet. If he's inaccurate, he's a false prophet. That's the standard. That's the actual biblical standard. And you're going to note here that what Chris Vallotton is doing is literally twisting the uh, the account of Agabus, you know, spinning it backwards in order to make it look like Agabus was an inaccurate prophet, said something was going to happen, and then it didn't. In fact, it went the exact opposite of the way Agabus said it was going to happen. And therefore, that means uh, prophets today can be true and inaccurate. Yeah, let me back this up so you can hear, again, Chris Vallotton make his case, and we'll keep going in the context then. Agabus said that the the Jews would bind Paul and they would hand him over to the Gentiles. What actually happened... Yeah, that's exactly, by the way, what Paul says happened in Acts 28... Uh, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of the fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what the text says in Acts 28. That's Paul's account of it. So, yeah. You can read it in verse 32 and 33, is that the Gentiles bound Paul and turned him over to the Jews. No, they did not. Paul, no, they did not. That is... Absolutely, 100% false. A straight-up twisting of this text and twisting it 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what it actually teaches and says. Now, what's the point? The point is is that uh, there's a difference between a bad prophetic word and a false prophet. 
You can have you can get the word wrong and not be a, a false prophet. No, you can't. Not according to Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, and you're going to note that Deuteronomy 18 is prophesying about Christ who arrives in the New Testament. Yeah, so just say, and so it applies there in the New Testament. Because you give words that aren't, aren't completely accurate doesn't mean you're a false prophet. Yes, it does. It just means that you have prophetic words that need help. I can tell you that there are... If your prophetic words need help, you're a false prophet. People have been wrong for 30 years. I'm not saying they're false prophets. I'm just saying they're bad ones. There's a difference between a false prophet and a bad prophet. False- no, no, there isn't. Not biblically. And he had to twist the story of Agabus and make him look like an inaccurate prophet and you know, in order to that justify this false teaching. And why is it necessary for him to do this? Because Bethel has a whole bunch of quacks there who do not prophesy accurately at all. And they need to be able to defend them as being true prophets. And so you just ignore Deuteronomy 18, lie about Agabus, and then voila, now we can have a whole bunch of people out there hearing from God the Holy Spirit, uh, but not hearing him accurately. But they're still true prophets. They're just, they're just bad. They're not false. They're just bad. Yeah, this is straight-up false doctrine and a twisting of God's Word. He's going to have to give an accounting to Jesus as to these words that he's teaching because he's deceiving people and literally opening up the door for other people to be deceived by actual bona fide false prophets, the very ones that Jesus warned would be arriving in the last days. prophet has an evil heart. A bad prophet just gets everything wrong. Yeah, let me back that up so you can hear it again. This is just utter blasphemy. Help. I can tell you that there are people who've been wrong for 30 years. I'm not saying they're false prophets. I'm just saying they're bad ones. There's a difference between a false prophet and a bad prophet. False prophet has an evil heart. A bad prophet just gets everything wrong. Mm. So a false prophet is one who has an evil heart. How am I supposed to see that? Because every single person, according to Jesus, has an evil heart. <laughs> yeah, I think you get the point. Uh, Chris Vallotton is uh, teaching false doctrine, and that's not the biblical standard for testing a prophet. If somebody prophesies inaccurately, they are, according to Deuteronomy 18, the biblical standard. They are a false prophet. Moving along. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as As long long as as I I do it with a flag. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus And the scent of burning sulfur in the air I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke But they love me everywhere For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do As long as I do it with a flap Yeah, that's right. doesn't matter what I say or what I do. As long as I do it with a flare. That is our original, by the way, uh, Perry Noble update music. And if you remember and you recall, Perry Noble was removed as the vision-casting leader of New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. Uh, And two things were cited uh, for his removal as being the vision-casting leader. Two things. Uh, one was alcoholism. The other was related to his marriage. Perry Noble has now been to rehab and uh, you know claims that he's been sober for so many no- number of days, uh, but uh, his marriage didn't survive. He is now divorced. 
all of that being said, I have it from New Spring itself, the leadership there, that Perry Noble is, well, he's never been formally or properly restored to ministry. He has restored himself. And now he is prolifically putting out new episodes of the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. And the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast is where Perry Noble explains how to do church leadership, you know, the Perry Noble way, which we've already determined based upon the train wreck that has occurred there at Anderson that the, the Perry Noble as a leader, um, it, well, he doesn't meet any of the biblical qualifications to actually be a pastor. He's, uh, you know, restored himself to ministry, and he's not the fellow I would want to go to to learn church leadership. And if my pastor was learning leadership from Perry Noble, I think that my pastor would no longer be my pastor anymore because I don't want him learning how to do ministry from this fellow. And so kind of in a strange, bizarro world kind of way, Perry Noble, in what we're going to be listening to, is going to be talking about unhealthy Christian culture. (laughs) And he is guilty of fostering an extremely unhealthy leadership culture uh, you know, there at New Spring during his tenure, J- just saying, you know, I you know, know a thing or two about some of the ins and outs of what occurred during the Perry Noble tenure at uh, New Spring. And let's just say it's not pretty. They're still working things out there. But uh, here's the Perry Noble leadership podcast from July 23rd, just a few days ago, talking about unhealthy Christian culture. Here we go. Welcome to the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast, where we believe your church can grow, your church should grow, and your personal growth as a leader really does make a difference. I'm here as always. Yeah, personal growth as a leader in Christ's church is, well, I would go to the Bible, not the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. With my co-host, Logan. Logan, how are you doing today? I'm good. How is everyone listening? I... They can't respond. Yeah, this but they're doing good. Media. I'm going to go ahead and put it on them. They're good. You're having a good day. I'm I speaking am, it for I you. I am. There you go. Who's Logan? Is, is she some new romantic interest of Perry Noble's? I don't know who she is. You got, have you had any <laughs> uh, alien sightings today? No, I haven't. But Growth have Company you? Growth Company got an Instagram page, and I swear to you, the DMs have been nothing about business and everything about like Bigfoot alien sightings. I'm not kidding. That's you. why the church in America is in <laughs> so much trouble is because you now have a cult following. A cult following. I started based around I have. Bigfoot and <laughs> God help us. God help us. Yeah. Um, please, God help us. Perry Noble doesn't see himself as one of the major problems in the church today, which he should. He sees himself as the solution. Lord, please help us. Mm. So today, everyone, we're going to talk about something completely new. This is brand new material. It is. This is exclusive. You mean it's not biblical? If it's brand new, it ain't found in the Bible, that's for sure, because all the stuff in the Bible... Is been around for a while, you know. Just saying, exclusive. Exclusive. No um, one's ever heard this from Perry before. Right, exactly. And it's so funny. Um, I got this idea. I got this concept. I really feel like the Lord showed me this idea when I was um in the shower, which. <laughs> 
No. 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 <laughs> no. So notice here, the, the Lord is the one who showed this to Perry Noble. When did the revelation drop from heaven? While Perry Noble w- was naked in the shower. My brain is really, really violently reacting against the mental images that this is creating, and I'm really having a tough time. Which is really weird to say on a podcast, and it just came out of my mouth. We're not going to edit that out, though. But a little side note here. I'll bet you didn't know why some of your best ideas hit you in the shower. Most people don't. Cause is that when God talks to people the most, is when they're bathing? Everybody has great ideas in the shower. The reason is, is because you've taken a shower the same way since you were like, 12 years old or, you know, 13 year or whatever. You, nobody ever stresses about, oh my gosh, how am I going to take this shower? You could go through the same routine. Because you go through the same routine, your mind is able to shut down and disengage. And when your mind is able and to. So when your mind is shut down and disengaged, God can now speak to you. Ah! <laughs> well, why it, does anyone think this guy it, it has anything legitimate to offer the body of Christ? shut down and disengage you have great ideas therefore that's why i had this idea so um, what is this big idea i well, have to know the 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 idea is it's all about it all basically centers around the one of the reasons that the church is i believe is um or some churches not all churches but some churches are in trouble in the united states even across the world is because they're so um bought into this idea uh, it, well, I'll just say it this way. It's all about the the quote unquote Christian culture that exists. See you when- uh-huh. and, and God told you this while you were in the shower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. See, the problem with Christians, so many churches, it's all about the quote unquote Christian culture. What are you talking about? When, when you say that, what comes to mind is like women in the army green jackets, and like mm-hmm. coffee dates and like skinny jean worship leader, that kind of hey, culture wrong, stuff. Yeah, nothing wrong with skinny jeans. Because, I mean, that stuff seems harmless to me. No, skinny jeans, there's something really wrong with them. Yeah, I'm just saying. You know? Yeah, and that stuff is harmless. The uh, Well, some people shouldn't wear skinny jeans. But other than that, that's, that stuff is... Especially if they have a muffin top, yeah. It's harmless. But Christian culture, when I say Christian culture, I don't, I don't... I don't mean that. Let me be really clear, too. I'm- so what do you mean exactly? Oh, exalted one who receives direct revelation from God while bathing. I'm talking about unhealthy Christian culture. Because at the end of the day, being a Christian is a good thing. The type of, the type of culture that I'm talking about, it, it creates an atmosphere where on, the only people that are allowed in the room, essentially, are the ones who externally... Have it all together. And, and let me just say this. What are you talking about? <laughs> Maybe I just don't go. I, I, you know, I'm a pastor of a church, by the way. And, uh, and so everybody who attends our congregation, from the pastor all the way down to the youngest child, they're all sinners. We come to church to hear the word of God to hear Christ and him proclaimed and placarded in his saving office. And you know, I kind of make a point like every single sermon 
to talk about Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. And in preaching that way, uh, it's the assumed thing is that nobody's got their act together and that everybody needs to be forgiven of one thing or another Mm -hmm. because they haven't lived up to God's standard. They've fallen short. Yeah. So where are these Christian churches where everybody has to have their act totally together? You know, maybe it's a form of weird kind of legalistic pietism. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. This is never intentional. No pastor in the history of the world with a true calling to minister to people has ever said, you know, I want this church to only include non-divorced couples who wait to have sex, mothers of mothers who stay home and always get their kids to youth group on time, um, people that have never struggled with any sort of addiction. That pretty much sounds like ev- you know, people in every church I've been a member of like my entire adult life. Where are these magical churches where nobody has messed up, nobody has sinned, and nobody needs a savior? Um, guys that have never looked at porn. Um, no, no, there's not a pastor out there whose heart is is to exclude people. I mean, we all want to include everyone, but unfortunately, there seems to be an unhealthy Christian culture that develops. It, it really does. It just develops in our churches that breeds like racism. It breeds uh, homophobia. It breeds... Really, where are these churches, Perry, that God has revealed to you in the shower are literally breeding racism and homophobia? Which, by the way, homophobia is quite the uh, politically charged word because in secular parlance... Any Christian who says that homosexuality is a sin is guilty of homophobia. Right. You see, the Christian message to sinners of all stripes, adulterers, thieves, murderers, homosexuals, the whole, you know, gossips, slanderers, coveters, idolaters, the, the good news is that Christ has bled and died for all of those sins. And that his death, his resurrection, and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace, through the preaching of the gospel, sets people free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. What are you talking about, Perry? I feel like we're learning more about your psychology than we are about actual biblical theology. It breeds judgment. Um close-mindedness, and, and and bullies, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I just had like 10 examples. Can, can you give us some examples, please? Come to mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not even... I think everyone probably did. I mean, everyone's seen that type of behavior, but the problem, I feel like it goes unnoticed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's swept under the rug so easily. So yep. how would a leader, you know, go about identifying that in his church? Um, I, I would say there's about three questions that, that we've got to ask. And All right. So, again, this is hot off the, the Revelation press. I mean, straight out of the shower here. Okay. First is, who is your audience? In other words, who sits in your auditorium every single week? Now, the key- What? 
so so in order to kind of get this right, we need to first figure out who our audience is. Um, I don't attend a church with an audience. I don't serve a church that has an audience. Yeah, this, when did churches have audiences? Key to the answer to this question is you've got to be willing to be like. 100% honest. You can't disguise this. You've got to answer this question head on um, because your audience can tell you 90% of everything you need to know about your culture. So if you see only clean, primp, proper people, you have a major problem. Um, right. So if people dress up to come to church, uh, yet confess that they're sinners in need of a savior, you still clearly have a problem only uh, you know you need to have more of the unwashed masses and uh, the impenitent oh, man. and he claims that god revealed this to him yeah he is still not qualified to uh, be a pastor and i would even argue you know since he's restored himself to leadership and ministry and stuff like that uh, avoid perry noble like the plague because he's still blaming others for his own fall and what has happened to him. That's kind of the best way I could put it. So, But I think you get the idea. Okay, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. A sermon on centering prayer, which is not a biblical practice, uh, taught by Adam Hushka. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Hope you're sitting down for this one. It's going to be a mystical train wreck. But then again, which of Adam Hushka's sermons that we reviewed has not been a train wreck? Just add this to the growing list of dead train cars. Here we go. Hey, oh. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Narrate Church, Helena, Montana. Adam Hushka, the vision casting leader, presiding. And this sermon literally is called The Art of Emotion, Centering Prayer. He's going to be promoting centering prayer and, uh, and a whole lot of other false theology along the way. It's almost impossible to identify and point out all of the different ways in which this sermon goes off the rails because I don't think it was ever on them. Yeah, it's that bad. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and we'll get right to it. Without any further ado, here's Adam Hushka and the Art of Emotion, Centering Prayer. So uh, several years ago, which I'm realizing, I said this last service, it's a sure sign you're getting old when several years refers more to decades than years. So about 15 years ago, uh, I was reading a book by Howard Hendricks, who's done some great stuff on teaching, and he taught at a seminary down in Dallas. He was kind of the guy a while ago. And he said something in there that I'm still not sure whether it reinforced a bias or created one in me, but he said something to the effect of most most pastors, most communicators, people like myself, uh, he, he likened us. He said most of them are like travel agents, so dated metaphor. Most of them are like travel agents handing out brochures to places they themselves have never visited. Of course, his criticism was the danger of standing up here with a microphone and talking about stuff that, that me, myself, am not working on, or that you yourself talking to anybody about something, telling anyone to do anything and not be invested in it yourself. And that, again, that was formative for me, and that has a lot to do with the culture around here. That's not to say that I'm perfect at it. I know I'm not. Uh, but it's part of what can lead to some self-absorption around here because, frankly, I simply refuse to talk about something that I don't, uh, can't see why it matters for me now today. It's also why we work hard to do series that are way out in advance. I'm working right now in my own morning chair time on stuff that we'll cover in, in January. But still, of course, it's always more true than others, right? Like there, there are still times where I come up on a series and go, oh, yeah, four months ago I thought about that and I haven't thought about it since. But that's what I'm trying to avoid. I say all that to say this morning's going to be pretty weird. 
Uh, if you're looking for evidence that church is full of weirdos, this is you came at the perfect time this morning. Uh, it's also going to be a little weird in the sense of you're looking for evidence that I have completely fallen off the deep end and don't follow Jesus anymore. This will be the perfect weekend. But what I want to talk about this morning is centering prayer. And to whatever degree you don't agree with where I'm going with it, I just wanted to say this. At the very least, I'm very personally vested, which doesn't necessarily make it any more or less true. Now, note, centering prayer, and he will acknowledge this, is not taught in Scripture. Now, it's old, but it ain't biblically old. But what I can say is on this thing that I'm talking about this morning, I, I have been practicing this uh, 20 minutes a day, six days a week, going all the way back to last August. And so to whatever else we're going to say about it, I just want you to know, like, I'm, I'm in this with you. That's not to say I'm an expert. Yeah, I think the sad part is, is he's not confessing this as a sin that he needs to repent of. Mm-hmm. I'm well aware that I've got a whole lot more work to do, but there's that. Now, if you're a guest with us, uh, we're thrilled that you're here. We recognize visiting a church for the first time is really tricky, if not intimidating and vulnerable. And so, good job, and thanks for being here. Uh, what I want to say to you is you're catching us at the end of the movie. And that doesn't mean we're, you know, you're not welcome here. It just, just means to kind of make you self-aware of this is part five of a five-part series called The Art of Emotion, hence the clip, where we've been exploring questions like what if God experiences emotion? And what if he's not the stoic God that the Greeks have had led us to believe? But what if the representation of his emotion in the text is actual and that somehow he can be completely other, not human? <laughs> the Reformed Baptists are going to have a heyday with this. Wow. Okay, so God now, if if the, what he's saying here is true, then God reacts. Uh-huh. We got a problem. Now, Jesus, as the God-man, you want to talk about Jesus having emotion. Jesus in the incarnation does, but he's talking about God in the abstract. And you know, if God is reacting, then he's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. Uh, we got a problem here. Human, and at the same time experience emotion the way the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, seems to portray. What if Jesus experienced emotion not just because he was human, but because he was also God? And that's raised all these questions about what would that say for us about what it means to... Un yeah, you just gave the Nestorian heresy where you split Jesus in two. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm not going to make it too much into this without losing my mind. Understand emotion. Well, last week we turned a little bit different corner. And last week we started talking about the, sh the shadow self. And if you weren't with us, uh, the, the way that you... The, the what? The shadow self. Where is that taught in Scripture? Anything about the shadow self is we, we know, many of us, that part of our American psyche is that um, you, you, you have unique skills and gifts. And that if you don't make your contribution, that contribution won't be made. And we even Christianize that, and I'm not even necessarily pushing against that, to say, like, God made you for specific things. Now, I'm not convinced it's as individualistic or self-absorbed as we often make it, but nonetheless, we recognize that we have unique strengths. What the shadow self explores is that the same thing is true in the negative. That to whatever degree you, all, you, you have kind of preformed strengths... The Bible doesn't explore the shadow self. What are you doing? You also have preformed deviations and darkness. Now we can see this on some of the surface level. Like we know that the hard-driving entrepreneur is also likely to be the control freak. Uh, we know that the empathetic, understanding, kind person is also likely to be an enabler or a pushover. 
We, we, we can see some of those tendencies. What the shadow self begins to explore is, what if Jesus doesn't call us to suppress the darkness? In fact, what if part of what we see in the Gospels is him really celebrating people who, who, who didn't suppress it? What we see him is... What are you talking? What if? What if? What if? Jesus isn't telling us to suppress the darkness. If by darkness you mean evil, we're called to repent of it, be forgiven of it, and we're called to mortify it daily. Oh, my goodness. Calling people out who did. He says things to the Pharisees like, you're a whitewashed wall. You're a hypocrite. That he was really hard on people who, who suppressed darkness in the name of following God. And the people who tended to be closest to him were those who must have been very aware of their darkness because they were... For- you are aware. The point regarding the Pharisees is that they were hypocritical because they were self-righteous. You know, look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You get the idea there. Former prostitutes and tax collectors and myriad other kind of disreputable kinds of things. Yeah, and the prostitutes and the tax collectors repented at the preaching of Jesus. Jesus even said so. And so what we explored last week is what, what if a function of self-awareness, of emotional intelligence, is to be intelligent about what your triggers are? What, what's... Where in the Bible does it talk about emotional intelligence? sin looks like in you to, to know as it's happening this might not be that that person's the worst person ever this might be that they impose their will on mine and i don't like that and what would be the advantage of being intelligent about those things so here's what i want to do this morning this is like the longest introduction ever i get it is i think if if you're leaning into that work which myers-briggs and enneagram and many other things can help you with it raises the question what do we do once we know what our darkness looks like or at least begin to know Repent. Ask Jesus to forgive you for it. What are you doing here? How did Christianity survive for 2,000 years without Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams and nonsense like this? The job of a pastor still today in the 21st century is to preach the word. I think centering prayer is a tool. But then there's another area where I think it can help, especially for those of you who maybe weren't here last week or really are a little freaked out about the shadow self and haven't thought at all about it since. You know, one of the things that I've loved about uh, the relationships that I've got to form in the youth baseball community that I've got to be a part of with my family these last several years is it gives me a chance to interact with, frankly, a lot of people who, who aren't necessarily, certainly aren't a part of this place. And, and that's not me judging them. I'm just saying the facts are what's refreshing is at times to be surrounded by a bunch of non-churched or unchurchy people. Not that you're churchy. You, you're with me, right? <laughs> Whew, digging a hole here. And one of the things I've had to play out in my head is if, if some of my friends ask me, like, what is the value of church? Like, how would I answer that? What, what makes it a valuable experience? Now, I don't know if this is accurate, but part of what I've started to think in my head and have been working on this for a couple of years is that one way to describe you all is that you're, you're eager learners. That as best I can tell, Narrate is comprised largely of a community of people who care deeply about the way they treat people around them, the relationship with God that they have. Isn't it interesting that the value of church is not centered in, in his mind, the proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, or that we need the forgiveness of sins. You know, so, you know, he's kind of oblivious to the idea that the marks of a true church are that, well, the uh, the word is correctly taught 
and you know the means of grace are administered in accordance with the gospel. He has no clue about the real value of church. And so what he's talking about as far as the value of church is not at all like the real value that we find in attending a Christ-centered, cross-focused church. You're trying to grow as a person, as a leader, as an individual. You're trying to love God and others more effectively, which means this isn't necessarily all of you doing all these things, but to me, you're a community who is constantly consuming challenges, whether that's a therapist or a book or you've learned the art of listening to sermons and podcasts. You're constantly listening to TEDx on, or TED on your phone. Like We are a community of learners. Here's where I think the centering prayer might be challenging for you to whatever. Yeah, but you're not a community of learners of what Scripture says. And TED Talks are a poor substitute for God's Word. Every degree that you're someone that goes, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm kind of a self-help consumer. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Part, part of what stands out to me is those of us who, who share those tendencies, we love to control our own growth. Part of what it does is it it affirms that not only can we control the world with our minds, we can control our own growth with our minds. And it's not that I'm pushing against that. I agree with Dallas Willard when he says one of the most important things about our lives is what we do with our minds. Yeah, Dallas Willard was a philosopher and a really bad one. And he's shipwrecked a lot of people with his bad theology, at least shipwrecked their faith. But centering prayer in a very Eastern kind of tradition challenges us to recognize that there is growth that can occur even when you're not controlling it intellectually. So here's the question I want to ask this morning is what if, what if there's another tool for getting well? What if, what if, what if there is another tool? Well, if there is, why isn't centering prayer taught in scripture? That requires a whole bunch of hard work, but involves doing nothing. That's really what centering prayer is. Now, again, if you're weirded out, I'm with you. You probably should be. But uh, where, where did this come from? Yeah, note, what if, what if, what if? It's not this is what God's word says. That's not what he's doing here. Never seems to be what he does. He's uh, literally just preaching the what if. What if there was a banana sandwich that when combined with uh, certain ingredients from Israel could somehow open up your third eye and give you enlightenment. What if? What if? What if? What if? Yeah, you get the point. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. He's not doing that, and he's creating alternative practices for Christian piety and promoting them uh, rather than the actual biblical practices for prayer and piety. And that's the reason why this is so dangerous, because this practice is not authorized, not taught, not demonstrated, Uh, at all in Scripture, and yet he's a big advocate of it and a promoter of it. For me. Well, many of you will know that I'm a graduate of George Fox Seminary, now Portland Seminary, which I think is kind of pretentious, but I lost that battle. Uh, But but as an alum, I get to take classes as I like. And a couple years ago, uh, uh, thanks to others, I was able to start taking one class a semester just again to continue to grow and hopefully that we don't become stagnant and sterile starting with the way I lead. 
Well, last uh, summer, I decided I was going to start taking uh, the spiritual director's classes. So before, I was just kind of cherry-picking, but there's a new certificate within their graduate work involved spiritual directing that I know a little bit about and I wanted to learn more about. Spiritual directors might be a term lost on you. It's not in places like Portland and Seattle. And in- yeah, what exactly is a spiritual director? Where can I find the qualifications for such a person and uh, what their duties are in the Bible? Where do I find that? In urban context. Uh, To the degree that I understand it, what spiritual directors are doing when done well is these are professional people who are working in concert with therapists and psychiatrists in kind of that one-on-one type work, but they're respecting the uniqueness of each other's work. And where spiritual directors are making, uh, doing a lot of good in places like Portland is with people not unlike yourselves who, who are championing spiritual growth and even following Jesus in their life but have deep reservations about church in this form and frankly are more and more disconnected from relationships in our technology-driven world. What they're doing is they're helping people form the relationships because they recognize as we learn nothing outside of the context of relationships so to talk to Jesus just between you and a book is dangerous. So I wanted to take this and kind of learn it more. I've had coffee with people professionally for 20 years, try to have intelligent conversation about God. I'm really intrigued about where the church is going in 20 years with the advent of online church and many other things. So I just wanted to learn about it. So I signed up for the, the, the courses. And the first two are called Knowing Self, or excuse me, uh, they're called Identity and Awareness. Frankly, last week and this week is my summary of uh, two graduate-level classes from George Fox. And the first assignment I was given by Dr. Bruner, you'll... Yeah, why is that an appropriate subject for a sermon? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. People know him and all his awesomeness because he teaches here about once a year. The first assignment I was given by him for this class was to practice centering prayer six days a week, 20 minutes a day. Now, I had this external motivation thing uh, that, that involved my ability um, Uh, to have to check a box at the end of the week to get a grade saying I had done that. What is centering prayer? Here here was the assignment. This is weird, and it's very non-Western. But nonetheless, here we go. The assignment was 20 minutes a day, you're to sit in some form of a chair, silence all devices, and think about nothing. Which is... Yeah, that's weird, because when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray... Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, when... The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. He didn't say, all right, sit in a chair and turn your mind off. He said, when you pray, say, which involves keeping your mind on and thinking and directing your thoughts and your prayers and your petitions to God. Yeah, um, yeah, this emptying of your mind. Oh, yeah, it's Eastern, all right. Yeah, but Eastern mysticism is not taught in Scripture. Which is kind of like driving down the road and seeing a billboard and going, don't look left, right? Like thinking about nothing is this at times oxymoronic thing. But the design of it, again, is is that you learn. Here's ultimately what you're doing, is being attentive to what you're doing with your mind. 
Uh, one parallel that is helpful to me. Yeah, I when I pray, I'm attentive to what my needs are and the fact that I'm a creature, and I'm beseeching my Creator, my God, to meet my needs and the needs of others. And different traditions have used this picture in different ways. Is imagine yourself uh, sitting maybe this afternoon on a rock next to the Missouri River. Now, of course, as you're doing so, uh, I'm not a fisherman because I can't catch fish. I just play baseball. But I'm told that that as as you're sitting there, myriad boats are going to come by, right? Like drift boats, rafts, some annoying tubers who are only chasing fish away, people walking the shore fishing. Here's ultimately what centering prayer involves for those 20 minutes. Is it's not not recognizing those boats. Like you can't keep yourself from doing seeing the boat. But the practice is the moment you become consciously aware of the fact that you're focused on this boat or this thought, you let it go. So the idea is is to to shorten up how long you're attentive to let it go, let it go, just let those thoughts go, 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 go. This is not prayer. To what you're thinking about. Now, it involves a sacred word, which nothing sacred about it other than no one's supposed to know what it is. Mine is breathe. But the idea is, is when you, when you become aware that you're following this thought, you let it go and you so come back. So when a thought comes in, your sacred word is breathe, and that's the way you let the thought go. Good gravy. This is not Christian, folks. Back to this center. And here's the end game. The end game is ultimately... That every thought you have, you surrender back to God. It's 20 minutes of surrendering, which is why the experts in this, which I am not, will say this. If in 20 minutes you fail 2,000 times, well, you haven't failed. You've actually succeeded at returning to God in a posture of surrender 2,000 times, which is another way of saying... Where in Scripture does it say that if I let a thought go, that I've surrendered to God or surrendered my thoughts in a posture of surrender? This is gobbledygook. And the only way you fail at this is to not show up. Now, one of the catches here is... Actually, if you show up to do centering prayer, you fail. You're not praying. You don't get to go looking for aha. If you have insight, you don't get to hit timeout. You don't get to write it down. In fact, you surrender the insight too. So you see, it kind of gets at the opposite of what we like. Because you're believing that God can do something... In the silence and solitude of your surrender. Now, where does this come from? Because, again, I know it sounds more Eastern. Well, Thomas Keating tells a story, and he's one of the uh, real innovators of this idea. Uh, Yeah, Roman Catholic mystic. Centering prayer. He tells a story from the early 1960s when he was a Benedictine monk uh, somewhere in Spencer, Massachusetts, actually, was where he lived. And in the early 60s, I, I wasn't there, but I've seen Forrest Gump. Uh, as, as things were happening, there was another monastery, Catholic monastery down the street that failed. It went out of business. They ultimately listed the property and it sold to a group of Buddhists. It was reopened as the... Does anyone see the problem here? We're going to get our spiritual practices and piety from Roman Catholics who are locked away in a monastery. Uh-huh. Yeah, the the whole theology of that tree is 100% corrupt. No good fruits coming from this. The Insight Meditation Center. Well, in the months that followed, after that place opened, Thomas Keating says that there would frequently be a knocking at the door of his monastery, the one he was at, 
But the inquirer wasn't asking what they could learn from him. The inquirer was asking for directions to the Insight Meditation Center. There was no iPhone. People actually had to follow a map, and they struggled to do so. And so they would show up over and over and over again asking for directions to this Buddhist meditation center. He started to recognize that a lot of the people asking actually came from Christian traditions themselves. And so he started asking them, uh, what are you looking for? And in his words, I quote, the, the common refrain was, a path, man. I'm looking for a path. Now, what they were referring to was this. Yeah. Where, did they drop LSD the night before? I'm looking for a path, man. Yeah, dude. Psychotropics, dude. This kind of place that they would arrive at where they understood their future, uh, but, but not through academic books, but just through silence and solitude. And he started to say, why aren't you looking for the path from your own Christian tradition? And they would look at him like he was from Mars, and they would say, Christianity has a path? So note the narrative supporting this practice isn't taking us into Scripture. <laughs> and clear examples of centering prayer used by Jesus, taught by Jesus, implemented by the disciples. Yep, nope, none of that. We're in the 60s, dude. Uh-huh. And uh, and we're, we're in a Roman Catholic monastery listening to a Benedictine monk give us a narrative. Well, people were looking for a path, dude, in the 60s. And so he decided to develop one. And so what Thomas Keating did was he went back with many of his friends and started to go, wait a minute. We've got this long, rich tradition of meditation. The Desert Fathers, the Catholic stream in particular, this long stream. The, the Desert Fathers. Again, they might be old. But they don't go back to the uh, to uh, yeah the time of the apostles old, no they're later, much later, and some of the uh, church fathers describe the desert fathers as mindless rocks. Yeah, that's one term used for them. Uh huh. Yep, I'm just saying. Theme of Christian meditation, we've lost it, and so they started to to rebrand it, reposition it. And they started using the term centering prayer. Mm. So the mystical practices of the Desert Fathers have now been rebranded. Glad you told us where it's from. Now, why? And what's the value? Well, here's to whatever degree this is helpful. Here's part of what I learned in this process. And I'm sorry if this feels more like a seminar. Uh, When I was 19 probably not unlike a lot of you at different seasons of your life, I became acutely aware of the fact that I was really bad at leading my own life. At the time, I would have called it conversion, but I think in hindsight, I just had experienced enough life to realize that I'm really terrible at making decisions, and I had enough familiarity with Jesus to know like he's better at it, and if I surrender to him, he'll lead me through that. Yeah, that doesn't sound like conversion to me. It doesn't sound like repentance, regeneration, forgiveness of sins, and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Wow. In that season of life, I was already connected and attending a great local church, Faith Chapel in Billings, one of the best. Stan Simmons was teaching. And so some things happened for me really quickly. First of all, I began to value the sermon. And not like counting ceiling tiles, but actually recognizing that, and this can help me think through and live life. I began to value uh, personal Bible study, and some people in my life began to teach me how to do that, and prayer, uh, the, the one-on-one conversation. There were a couple mentors in my life that were key in helping me process life and make decisions and call me on my stuff. I began to value, I'd always valued reading, but I kind of transitioned from reading Dean Koontz and Stephen King to reading Christian leadership and self-help type books. 
I recognized the value of community. I recognized serving uh, and the value of that. I started teaching fifth and sixth grade at this local church on Saturday nights. But here, here's what I'm starting to understand. And it's not, a bull, it's not an either or, it's a both and. That all played to my control freak's strengths. Because ultimately what I'm doing in that is recognizing, because really what I was mastering is, is Psalm 139, I think, summarizes it really well. And, and I'm grateful that people taught me this. Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's ultimately a practice of going, okay, Lord, what's broken in me? What do you want to address next? And I, I mastered the art to some degree of going, okay, so God, we're going to work on anxiety. So we're Yeah, that, that's a twisting of Psalm 139 there. Where does the Bible talk about that? And where, what podcast can I find? And what books can I read? But here's what stood out to me this last year in Centering Prayer. The one thing it did was it protected my sense of autonomy and control. It affirmed that ultimately Adam can control life through what he does with his mind. And it's not that I'm pushing back on the value of the mind, but I'm pushing back a little bit on that control. See, here's what centering prayer begs you to consider. And if you reject it and think that it's too weird and mystical and Eastern, here's ultimately what you're rejecting. What what centering prayer, in my opinion, what, what it's bringing forth is this idea that there are parts of you that you aren't aware are there. And God in his grace will work on them without your ever knowing it. Boy, that sounds pious, doesn't it? Yet nowhere taught in Scripture. See, Cynthia Bourgeau, who I highly recommend everything she's written, my favorite book on this topic, it's on the mind map, and there's a great podcast on there where I highly recommend listening if you're all intrigued. She says this. She says there's silence, and then there's silence. She illustrates it this way. That, that there, there is something that she calls... Uh, outer silence. Now, this is the type of silence. That- yeah, who is she again? Is she uh, an author of scripture? That probably all of us know. It's the type of silence that you're looking for when you get off work, uh, maybe when you turn off your phone, uh, when you say we should watch a movie that's actually driven oftentimes right by this desire. Like, I just want to get away. I'm going to have a beer. There's lots of things we do to get to this outer silence. She points out, the silence goes deeper than that. There's what she calls inner silence. Inner silence is, she says, what people are looking for when they go to church. Maybe when you go for a long walk or a bicycle ride and maybe even listen to a podcast and you just kind of get to that cathartic kind of gone place. It's what we look for when we go on retreats and sometimes even vacation. I'm looking for a cathartic gone place. Really? Vacations. It's it's It's... She would say that it's, it's the deepest form of silence most especially Americans ever get to. Yeah, that, that's what she would say. What does the Bible say? And then she says, only through inner, uh, excuse me, centering prayer do we ever experience what she calls, or my, my words for what she labels, uh, surrendered silence. See, this is a form of silence. Yeah, you can sit there and piously call it surrendered silence all you like. But that doesn't mean that that's really what this is. This is a man-made practice. This is a man-made doctrine. This is a man-made spirituality. And as pious sounding as these words are, this is not taught in Scripture. Silence uh, that lives in the awareness that, that sometimes the best thing is just to focus on God but differently than the way we often think about it through meditation. So part of what she's observing 
And again, I, I know this is maybe uncomfortable for you guys, uh, but she recognizes that we, we don't just have a conscious self, that we also have a subconscious and even an unconscious self. We can go to that slide if you don't mind, Marla. That there's parts of you that when you look in the mirror, you're not surprised to see it. And then there's parts of you that when your spouse looks at you, they're not surprised to see it, but you are, right? And then there's parts of you that God knows about, but nobody else can see. What she's arguing about is, is, is that centering prayer allows the grace of God to get all the way to the part of you that's frankly pretty broken, unknown by everybody. Says who? Who says that centering prayer gets to that part of me? God doesn't say that in his word. But God, but still loved by God. But it's, it's inviting you to deepen your awareness on one level and to be aware that you'll never be completely aware of it on another. Now, here's another couple other kind of $10 words uh, that I think are helpful to this conversation. They're the words cataphatic and apophatic. Uh, these are different types of meditation. I remember them this way because cataphatic sounds like a cat and I don't want a cat, though we also probably do want this kind of meditation. And then there's apophatic. Cataphatic meditation, and if you're sleeping, I'm sorry, we'll be back to the surface in just a minute. Cataphatic meditation is the type of meditation that to whatever degree you're familiar with it, you're probably, this is what you know. It, it's Lectio Divina. It's, it's what we've talked about with anxiety stuff around here. It's, it's plugging a new tape into the deck. It's, I'm going to meditate on this verse. I'm going to meditate on this verse. I'm going to think about this truth. I'm just going to try to force my mind to stay here. That's cataphatic meditation and certainly very prevalent and important. Apophatic meditation is the opposite. Apophatic meditation is about the emptying the removal. Yeah, which verse are you exegeting again here? The stepping away from, the surrender. In fact, uh, those who theologically go here, and please understand that even if you disagree with them, uh, these are deeply sincere, deeply theological, Christ-following, thoughtful people. One of the go-tos for them theologically is Philippians 2, where Paul says, "...who being in very nature God, speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing." That made himself nothing is the word kenosis. It's emptying. And what these guys are recognizing is that if it was advantageous for Jesus to empty himself. Yeah, now this is a word game they're playing here. First real you know, attempt to try to make this look biblical is a twisting of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, here's what it says starting at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was by nature God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And you can't just say he emptied himself because the text goes on, to explain how he did so by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus didn't empty himself in the apophatic sense. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Though he was God, he became a slave, being born in the likeness of men. That's the idea. So what he's doing here is twisting, twisting terribly, 
what uh, Philippians 2 actually says and means in order to create the false impression that somehow Jesus emptied himself in the apophatic sense. Maybe it is for us as well. So the question becomes, but where is that in the Scriptures? And if we're being honest, this is probably more based upon Christian tradition than it is Scripture. It would be helpful. I'm glad you're being honest. It is not based on Scripture. If you could point to the place in the Bible where it says, and Jesus practiced meditation. It would be helpful if you could point to the Bible where it says, and Jesus taught meditation. Frankly, you can't. There are illusions, though. What we can observe is No, they're not. There are no illusions to him practicing meditation. None. Jesus had this habit of withdrawing, especially before these major moments in life. In Matthew 4, uh, we, we get an example of this. After his baptism, it says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the wilderness looks like this. Just in case uh, you're thinking of like grape orchards and palm trees. It's about exposure. It's, it's about vulnerability. It's about solitude and silence, almost to a deafening degree. Uh, in Mark 6, we, we get a story where, where Jesus, uh, he's actually grieving the loss of, of one of his best friends and cousin, John the Baptist. He's heartbroken about it. He needs to go process it. And, and the text says this, So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee uh, to, to get away. Uh, in another instance, in Luke 6, uh, there's an instance where Jesus, again, we're just talking these key moments. Where now, seeking a silent place where you're not going to be interrupted to pray and to, you know, in order to, you know, basically clear your mind and not be distracted, that's an important practice. But that's not the same as when a thought comes into your mind whooshing it away with a sacred word and clearing your mind and engaging in centering prayer. And neither texts that he's mentioned here are, are teaching that practice at all. You know, Think of it this way. It, it, it's like those of you with kids and you want to have a time when you can pray, read God's word, and have you know, some, some time you know, that between you, you know, with you and God. And so you have small kids. Do you wait until they get on the bus and go to school? Or do you try to do it in the morning after they've woken up and before they leave for school? There's no way you're going to get anything done in the, in, you know, when it comes to devotions or any kind of reading or whatever if you're going to do it during the time when the children are up and before they go to school. But after they go to school, you, you have the house to yourself and now you're not going to be distracted. Yeah, so waiting until the house is silent is not the same thing as clearing your mind and engaging in apophatic meditation. So what he's doing here is he's bending these texts to force them to be proof texts for apophatic meditation when just reading the context and looking at what's going on yeah, no example of that at all. In fact, there are no biblical examples ever, despite the fact that Israel is in the Near East. There's no biblical examples ever, Old Testament or New, of anybody engaging in apophatic meditation or promoting apophatic 
meditation. That comes out of Buddhism and weird Eastern mysticism and nonsense like that. But we continue. Jesus seems to have been doing important things. Uh, Right before he picks the disciples, the text tells us this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So there's this very important, very big decision. And what did Jesus do? Sit down and diagram it out and figure out what the science would tell him to do here? No, what we know is he went and got alone. Again, we can't argue that he was doing apophatic or cataphatic, but we know he got alone. In Matthew 17... It seems rather matter-of-factly. Matthew says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Again, this practice of isolation. In Matthew 26, a verse that I feel like I read... Um, Isolation. If you take three people with you, you're not isolated. (laughs) Just just saying, you know. Every week at Narrate... Before his arrest and crucifixion, it says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I'll go over there and pray. In fact, uh, Luke 5, I, I'm realizing, I realized this week that I, I butcher this verse too often. Listen to Luke 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to, him, to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Translation, like likes on his Instagram page were way up. His friends wouldn't stop Snapchatting him. His, his circles were getting bigger and bigger. And what did he do? But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Right. So- and Jesus, when asked by the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, said, when you pray, say. We have great examples of Jesus' prayers. One of them Uh, You think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was he engaging in apophatic meditation? No. He was literally praying, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass for me, let it be so, but not my will be done, but yours. We actually know that Jesus sweat drops, you know, sweat, you know, blood, you know, drops of blood out of his own skin because of the anxiety he had knowing he was going to the cross. And each and every example we have of Jesus praying, we hear him speaking words. Yep. So we can't necessarily argue what exactly he was doing there, but we can see this practice. Cynthia Bourgeau says it this way. No, you cannot see this practice. That practice doesn't exist in any biblical text. You're eisegeting and reading it into it. Just virtually every spiritual tradition that holds a vision of human transformation at its heart, also claims that a practice of intentional silence is non-negotiable. And I wonder how much more true that is in an age of iPhones and Apple Watches and constant presence to our stuff. Now, if you choose to jump into this, there's a warning. And to be sure, it's a warning that Dr. Bruner issued to us. We were about six weeks in into this practice, I was, and I was in Portland for the day of class with Dr. Bruner, and towards the end of class, he said, okay, I have to warn you. He said, you guys are six weeks into this. If you keep going, it's about to get really dark. Now, my shadow self is control and familiarity, so when people say stuff like that, I'm just like, well, then why would I keep going forward? Like, why would you even tell me that? That's the stupidest thing you could ever say. And I just kind of seize up. But nonetheless, about a month later, and I don't know that I fully realized this till it was over, but I, but I can say with confidence and integrity now that the middle of November through Christmas were a, a, this, the darkest six weeks of my adult life. 
which is ironic because I was deep into this practice. And what was going on here? Well, here's, ironically, my ability to cognitively explain it. What I began to experience, I think, as I make sense of it, was that the more serious you get about this practice, which means the more serious you get about there, there is parts of yourself that you can't see, the more that I grew in this practice, frankly, the more that my brokenness became apparent, the more that I'm a... Now, notice he's now selling this practice based upon personal testimony. Yet he openly admitted you can't find this practice in Scripture. The more that I'm a raging control freak, the, 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 the more that, that I don't like surprises, all that stuff became more and more apparent. But here's what came with it. My acknowledgement that I couldn't do anything about it. I'd spent the last 20 years doing the evangelical thing, which I don't regret and I'm not going to stop. God, what's the brokenness? Okay, where's the podcast? Where's the book? Where's the Bible study? Where's the verse? And something about the practice was this reminder of, listen, 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 you don't get to totally change. You don't get to totally control your ability to change. These things would start happening to me, and I know we're not supposed to get these direct uh, results from it. But this is the stuff that started to happen to me, and it was it was depressing. I had one happen this week. I've talked to him about it. But earlier in the week, we were at baseball practice, and one of my boys made a few errors at third, and I kind of did that, like, "Come on, get the ball." And in hindsight, this happened to me the next day, in the middle of nowhere, do or in the middle of the day, thinking about whatever else I was supposed to be thinking of. I instantly could see him. And his eyes. And I remember at the time I was thinking, like, work harder. And in the moment I thought, man, that hurts. And I followed up with him. But there were those moments of just awareness. But more than that, like, I'm a jerk. And, and despite 20 years of hard work, there's parts of me that are profoundly broken. I think part of what happens here is it invites you in. And to me, this somewhat. Yeah, yeah, that broken part of you, yeah, that's called sin. We all have that because we were born dead in trespasses and sins. We have a sinful nature still. way epitomizes grace because grace would say, despite you, I wonder if part of the value of this is this reminder that even your own transformation into the image of Christ is not something you get to totally control. That this guy. Again, this sounds so pious, but this is all mystical gobbledygook. That this God knows parts of you that you can't see, that are, at times are more gross than you're aware. And he still loves you. And if part of what. Now, that part's true. God knows just how thoroughly corrupted by sin we are. And the solution is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He sent us a crucified, risen Savior. He did not send us centering prayer. And to say that somehow God is going to use this practice for really addressing your brokenness turns centering prayer into a sacrament. And there is no word of God when it comes to this practice that God's going to use it to really help heal the brokenness in you. And he still loves you. And if part of what we're doing here is creating space for God's grace to permeate. See, part of what people like Cynthia Bourgeau say the win here is, is that if you in 20 minutes can master the art of surrender, then maybe, maybe... Yeah, if I in 20 minutes master the art of surrender, oh, this sounds so 
pious because it uses the word surrender. Oh, I'm surrendering to you. No, you're not. Maybe in the midst of real life, when you're triggered, maybe that will heighten your ability before you trigger. And we already know psychologically you're gone till you're back. But just before that transition point, maybe you can get better at catching those moments too. So listen, I, I don't know where you're at in this conversation, but here's the question. I, I'm just about out of it is you know, the best way I can describe where I'm at in this conversation. What, what if... What if there's ways that God's grace wants to make us well? What if? What if? I can't promise that this is going to be true, but what if it what if it is? Maybe it isn't, but what if it is? I don't have any biblical texts to support this, but what if? And this isn't anti-Bible study or anything like it, but ironically, there's times where God goes, "Would you just loosen your grip on your own growth?" Really? God says that? Where where does he say that? I'd like to pray for you, God. Lord, as we move into a song that's... Done. I think you get the point. Wow. So Adam Hushka has you know, gone full bore mystic. And you know, does that surprise anybody? It really shouldn't. This is a man who is not centered or grounded, yeah, pun intended, uh, in God's word. And he refuses to obey the command for pastors to preach the word. And he's off in bizarro world trying to teach people, well, what if, what if, what if, what if God wants to use centering prayer to help, help get you out of control in your healing and transformation into the image of Jesus? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. What if, Adam, you're totally wrong? Because this is completely man-made. It has no basis at all. In the biblical text. In fact, I find it fascinating over and again that where you see false doctrine and false teachers, you will always end up with a false form of prayer because the devil knows how important prayer really is. Roman Catholics pray to the dead saints. They pray to the Virgin Mary. Here you have uh, Adam Hushka, rather than saying, Lord, have mercy on me, or saying, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one, you have him sitting there w- focusing on his thoughts, and as they come in going, whoosh, 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 and the word is breathe, 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 and getting rid of those thoughts and thinking somehow this is prayer. Yeah. Then, of course, you got the Word of Faith fellows sitting there going, we need to decree and declare. And so rather than humbly asking God for the things they need, they just say, I decree and declare that I am wealthy, I am healthy, I am wise, and all that. Yeah, and they're not praying either. Yeah, the devil seems to assault true biblical prayer. And by doing so, he cuts people off communication-wise with their God. That's a dangerous place for any of us to be. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.